You're listening to a sermon given by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, May 30th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That was A.W. Tozer in 1978, and in many ways, this is the ultimate question. In fact, it has been the question that has been underneath and behind and, and moving the series that we've been in for the last eight or nine weeks along. And so this morning, I, I want to spend our time together really unpacking why we've been doing what we've been doing over the last several weeks and in a sense of a bit of a recap. And And so we'll start it this way. I'm sure that if I were to ask many of you what you believed about God, if I were to ask you who is God, you could give me every correct theological answer known to man. All of your answers would probably be accurate and they would probably be biblical. But if we're honest, it's an altogether different thing for me to ask you the question, what do you believe Or what comes into your mind when you think about God? If we're really honest, you know what you should say, but would you give yourself a moment to consider what you really would say God is like? What do you believe him to be like in your heart? Tozer would go on to write the most important The most portentous, that's our big word for the day, which means important and imperative, really. The most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. We move towards, we live in light of, we relate to God and others on the basis of what we believe. Not so much what we just know, but what we believe in the deepest parts of our heart God to be like. Not our rote theological answers. So in times like ours, when microscopic viruses end up shutting down nations and hardworking men and women lose their jobs, when the doctor's diagnosis comes back terminal, when, as President Obama so clearly and eloquently stated on Thursday, millions of Americans are being treated differently on account of race, and it's called tragically, painfully, and maddeningly normal, whether it's dealing with the healthcare system or interacting with the criminal justice system or just jogging down the street or just watching birds in a park, it shouldn't be normal. When life in a broken world is coming crashing down upon us in our lives, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you because you are going to move towards or respond to life based on that image of God that you believe to be true in your heart. Bob Kellerman, who is a a biblical counselor, he wrote that every problem of the soul, 
includes a distorted and unbalanced answer to two questions about God's infinitely perfect character. And here are the questions. God, do you care? God, are you in control? Questions surrounding the reality of God's love and the reality of God's holiness. Both of these questions relate to what comes into our mind when we think about God. I don't know if you realize this, but having been created in the image and likeness of God, each of us is hardwired by God to to desire to know that God cares deeply, that God cares personally, that God cares purposefully for us. But don't be deceived, friend. There is a battle raging for what you believe God to be like in your heart. There is a battle going on for what you believe in the deepest recesses of your heart that God is like. I mean, have you ever really wondered why it's so hard for you to truly believe that God is for you? Many of you have all the right answers about what he is like, but have you ever really considered why it's so hard to believe God's heart of love for you, to trust his love for you? It's because there is a battle for what your heart believes to be true about God. There is what God has and continues to reveal about himself, And there's the picture that Satan continually whispers into the ear of humanity ever since the garden. The great author Herman Melville picked up on this when he said, the reason the mass of men fear God and at bottom dislike him at the same time is because they rather distrust his heart. They fancy him all brain, like a watch. Friends, whose view of God will you believe? in the midst of such broken days in which we live, whose view of God shapes what your heart believes to be true about who God is? Peter reminds the church in, in 1 Peter that based on who God has revealed himself to be, you and I can cast all of our anxieties on God because he cares for you because he's loving enough, because he's strong enough. He wants all of our anxieties to take those burdens off of us. And then in the very next verse, Peter reminds us that we have an enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a lion seeking to devour. Resist him, Peter says, firm in your faith. Resist him. Don't give in to the pictures. Don't give in to the whispers that he is whispering into our heart, deceiving us as to what God is like. Friends, there is a battle for our joy. There is a battle for our flourishing. There is a battle for the glory of God in this city. And that battle is won or lost according to the image of God that we believe to be true in our hearts. What comes into your mind when you think about God? John chapter 1, verse 18. John says that no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. 
John reminds the church that it's in God's nature to tell us and to show us what he's like. And the one who has told us and shown us most clearly what God is like, what his heart really looks like is his son. Jesus is the one who embodies, lives lives our perfection, lives in front of us the perfect heart of God. It's Jesus who explains and clarifies and demonstrates the very nature of God to us. So this is why for the last eight, nine, ten, I can't remember how many weeks we've been doing it, we've been exploring some of the many encounters that people have had with Jesus in the Gospels and specifically making note of the fact that when God chose to take on flesh and blood, to come in his son, to live in our broken world, the thing that he is most known for and the emotion that is most associated with him is compassion. Not anger, not frustration. He doesn't give in to that even though treason is being committed against him cosmically and the Father. When God himself took on flesh and made his dwelling among us, the emotion most attached to him that we see played out in these encounters with Jesus is compassion. Jesus has been giving us for the last eight, nine, ten, however many weeks, a front row seat to see, feel the heart of God the Father. Great John Stott said that Christ put on our feelings as well as our flesh. In the warmth of his compassion, we see the fully human emotional life of our Savior. One of not just body, but also mind and heart. Jesus didn't just perform compassionate acts. He felt and personified compassion. Jesus has been giving us a window into the divine heart of God the Father. He's been after shaping what comes into our mind when we think about God. We've seen when we started out this journey that as Jesus looked out on the crowds that would follow him, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he began, in some instances, to teach them many things. So his compassion, it sprang up in the context of the spiritual condition of the people that would come to be around him. And so he would meet their need as he would teach them the truth and grace of God. And at other times, we saw, and you can read in the Gospels, that when he looked out on the crowds, he would again have compassion on them, Mark's version says that Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The heart of God for his people, personified and lived out in his son, is one of compassion. He sees and he has compassion and his compassion gives way to action. But it's not just the the group. It's not just the people. It's not just the collection that would gather around Jesus that would incite this compassion, that would reflect this heart of God to his people. Most of the weeks that we've been looking at this, and you'll see in the gospel accounts, it comes out, this compassion is seen in encounters that Jesus has with individual people. Like blind Bartimaeus, the beggar that Jesus met on the side of the road. 
who had been cast out of his home, cast out of his society, completely overlooked by those around him. Jesus saw him. He had compassion. In the end, he healed him. He saw the compassion of Jesus again demonstrated when he would encounter a man named Zacchaeus, one who was a traitor to his own people, the lowest of the low in the Jewish mind of that day, greedy, self-interested. Jesus saw him. He had compassion and he transformed him by his grace. We saw Jesus encounter another man who we had learned had been born blind. This time Jesus saw him. He took initiative upon that encounter. He had compassion on him. And he again healed him. The compassion of Jesus in the heart of God was again seen as we looked at Jesus' interaction with a widow from the town of Nain. A woman who had lost everything. Again, as Jesus saw her, not passing by, feeling bad for what she was going through, assuming he understood everything about it, he saw her and we're reminded that he had a deep compassion for her. And we know he had a deep compassion for her because of what happens next as he went and raised her only son from the dead and returned him back to her. We saw Jesus listen and see even Martha and have compassion on her. And in his compassion towards her, he dealt with what was going on in her heart. As one writer said, every time you follow Jesus along the stories of the Gospels, you see that he always has an ear to hear our pain one by one. That swells his heart towards the people he sees. He always provides the perfectly timed solution. We see a window into the nature, the character, the heart of God himself as we watch Jesus encounter the crowds that would come near him, the people that he would see, and not just that, the stories he would even tell. So we took some time to look at the story of the Good Samaritan, a man who risked his life, his resources. He crossed deeply entrenched ethnic boundaries to take responsibility of another man's well-being. He saw the man who had been beaten while others passed by. He had compassion on him. And he stepped in to act. We looked finally at the story of the prodigal son, really the story of a loving father. It's a tremendous story. The story of a father who saw his son while he was still a long way off. He saw him as he was. A son who, having dismissed his father time before, wished he was dead to take what was owed to him, coming back hungry, tired, ragged, with nothing. And we saw the heart of the father running towards him and restoring him by grace to a right relationship with him again. Friends, all along the way, Jesus is giving those who are willing to look, those who are willing to listen, He's giving us a front row experience into the heart of God. We see over and over again how the character and the heart of God move the hands of Jesus towards those that he would meet. This would happen all the way to the cross where God would see us, you and I, created in his image and likeness. 
yet dead in sin and trespasses, despising his name. He would see us and he would have compassion on us as his heart willingly allowed his hands to be moved to the edges of a cross where they would be nailed. As Sinclair Ferguson said, when we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the links to which God's love goes in order to win us back to himself. We would almost think God loved us more than he loves his own son. We can't measure his love by any other standard. God is saying to us, I love you this much. The cross is the heart of the gospel. It's the thing that makes the gospel good news. Jesus died for us. He has stood in our place before God's judgment seat. He's borne our sins. God has done something on the cross which we could never do for ourselves. But God does something to us as well as for us through the cross. He persuades us that he loves us. Friends, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Honestly, what's he like to you? I know you've got answers. I know you know verses. But what comes into your mind when you think about him? As you're living out your life in the midst of a broken and fallen world, what comes into your mind when you think about God. Tozer was right. It's the most important thing about you because you are going to respond to life. You are going to move towards whatever that image of God is that your heart really believes. This entire series has been an effort somehow to get the right image of God into our hearts. You see, as you and I see Jesus we are seeing divine compassion. We are seeing the heart of God come in flesh. Jesus is the one who shows us God the Father's compassion for sinners. He's the one that shows us God the Father's justice for sin. Do you realize that the cross is the thing that ultimately and finally demolishes every caricature of God that the devil whispers into our heart? That God is either unloving towards you or unable to help you. All the lies that he's been whispering since the beginning in the garden, it is the divine compassion of God personified in Christ most clearly seen on the cross that finally demolishes all of those things. What comes into your mind when you think about God? It's a critical question because we are always going to respond to our life based on what we believe about who God is. Which means, as every encounter that we've seen has hinted towards, it it means as the church, God's people, we are going to embody, we are going to reflect the collective image of God that we actually believe in. We can make all the right proclamations. We can make all the right statements about God. And at the same time, through our lives, reflect an entirely different picture of him to a watching world. 
to the beauty of being seen and loved by God in Christ is that he promises by the work of his spirit in our hearts to conform us piece by piece, bit by bit, into the image of Christ. He promises that as you and I continue to see Jesus, that he'll continue to conform us into his image and likeness so that you and I can begin to see those around us the way that he sees them. It's the promise of God to bring our gospel demonstration more and more in line with our gospel proclamation by the work of his spirit in us. And that's what we should want more than anything. God promises that for those who will receive him, for those who will enjoy his compassion and grace, he will make us to increasingly reflect the image and likeness of his son, to increasingly reflect his compassion and grace to a broken world that we're in as we continue to behold him see him he'll make us to look more like him as he does you and I by the work of his spirit in us the new heart that he has promised to give us where his spirit is alive and at work in us changing us and conforming us into the Christ by which we behold in his word you and I God's people the church will be able to increasingly see those around us the way that he does The enemies of such compassion like our self-righteousness and our self-importance and our busyness and our hurriedness, all the things we've seen in these stories over the week, we, we end up not being those people that can see and pass by quite so easily anymore because we're increasingly seeing people the way that Jesus sees them, which then gives rise to you and I having the compassion of his heart, sharing the compassion of God the Father for those that he has put us around, those that we see, just as Jesus has seen these in front of him, and compassion has swelled up, his compassion always responds. God has promised that as you and I see Jesus, he is going to make us more and more like Jesus so that you and I collectively as the church see those that God has put us around, have the compassion of his heart and are willing to act, are willing to risk, are willing to sacrifice, are willing to lay down our reputation, lay down our finances, lay down our resources, possibly lay down friendships that we have for the sake of having the compassion of God for those that he has put around us. Which gets us back to where we started this series and the verses in Matthew chapter 9 that Tim read. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, God is in the business of making the church to increasingly reflect his compassion. The compassion we see embodied in Jesus. Compassion was Jesus' calling card. In the Gospels, this compassion is not said of anyone else aside from Jesus. 
And as God works out his promise to conform us increasingly into into the image and likeness of Jesus, this compassion is meant to be our calling card as well having become recipients of his mercy. We're we're meant to echo that mercy in the way that we treat others. Having been recipients of his heart of compassion, not seeing us with contempt, that compassion is meant to unleash a series of merciful actions just as the way the father unleashed a series of mercy towards his wayward son. Friends, Christ not only has compassion on his people, He gives us by his spirit what we need to become instruments of compassion towards others. It's through the gospel that we become the kind of people who, as Paul told the church in Ephesus, are kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving of one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. We become the kind of people who see others the way that Jesus does. It has compassion on them, reflecting his heart. Hanging all over this series, and in nearly every encounter that we've seen with Jesus, be it the crowds, be it the individuals, be it the stories he told, hanging all over them is is the question of what kind of neighbor are we going to be? especially in light of the cultural turmoil in which we live in a broken world. What kind of neighbor are we going to be? In Matthew 9, when Jesus looks out on the crowds and has compassion on them because he sees their spiritual condition, they're harassed, they're helpless. There's nothing that they can do in this situation that we're in, and he has compassion on them. Jesus all but says, everyone out there is ready. But are we? Why he says, cry out to the Lord of the harvest for laborers. Call out to God to make his people ready. The crowds, they were ready. Call out to God to make his people ready. That was the issue then, it's still the same issue today. In fact, I, I love, I love, I love the, the humor in God's providence. I don't know if you knew this or not, but right in the middle of this series where we're, we're looking at the heart of God lived out by Christ, this nature of compassion, that right in the middle of this series, our mayor has challenged us to be the very people we say that God is making us into. I don't know if you caught the story because most of the news is all about the COVID virus and all those kinds of things, but on May 7th, right in the middle of this, our mayor declared Richmond, Virginia to be a city of compassion. Here's what he said. This proclamation is an invitation to every resident of Richmond to use their gifts and talents to lift up their neighbor. So there it is, church. What kind of neighbor are we going to be? one that meets the needs of those around us with all of the force, all of the passion, all of the joy, all the speed, all the power that we go after our own well-being? Are we going to be those that that put our sense of well-being into the well-being of those around us so much so that when they flourish, we rejoice? 
What kind of neighbor are we going to be? Are we going to be a people that reflect the heart of God the Father that sees, that has compassion, and then acts? This is the heart of God in Christ. We've seen over and over again. This is the image that God has promised to make us into. Being the kind of neighbors that love others as we love ourselves. It's, it's born out of a deep and abiding love for God. A love that Jesus said gives all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. A love that we're eager to pursue for God. But it only comes as you and I see him rightly for who he is. We can't love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength if we think he's all brain and no heart. What comes into your mind, what you really believe about God, it, it's the most important thing about you because you're going to move towards that picture, that image of him. We think about being this kind of people that reflect the heart and the compassion of God, a, a people who are part of a city known for this kind of compassion. You've got to understand that guilt and morality and even legislation in the end, they can't produce the kind of radical love for neighbors that's willing to lose your own life to a point so that your neighbor's life might flourish. See, this was part of the point Jesus was making in the story of the Good Samaritan. When he told the story and he had a priest and a Levite be the ones who saw the man beaten on the side of the road, and for whatever reasons they had in their mind, we can only guess, went to the other side of the road and passed him by, you've got to realize it was in their job description to show compassion. They were bound by morality and they were bound by duty to be compassionate. But when it was going to cost them something, possibly their own life in danger, possibly their own sense of cleanliness and holiness, they weren't willing to sacrifice. You see, duty and morality and even simple conscience, it can produce acts of compassion, but it can't take it all the way to the kind of sacrifice that we see in Christ. That's meant to be reflected in his people. This is the Achilles heel, ultimately, of every attempt to legislate compassion. In the words of the eminent philosopher Taylor Swift, band-aids can't fix bullet holes. And what we're dealing with is the bullet hole of indwelling sin. This is the reality that you and I have to deal with in life in a fallen world. And the kind of long-term sacrificial compassion that our city is literally asking for is the kind of compassion that is born out of a heart that's been renewed by the gospel. A church that sees people the way Jesus sees them and loves them as they love their self. See, the gospel utterly transforms the compassion that our city is longing for. It's not less than what our officials have in mind. It's just so much more. A compassionate gospel neighbor is someone who looks to meet the very real human needs of the people that are around them. Whether they believe the things you believe or don't, and we seek to meet those needs with such costliness and sacrifice that people will have to hear the gospel, that people will need to hear the gospel just to make sense out of our life. 
that our life makes no sense apart from understanding why we do what we do. Our life is so inexplicable to everyone around us. That's what it looks like to be a neighbor to the city that's reflecting the image and likeness of Christ, the compassionate heart of God that he has put on display and demonstrated over and over again in this series. You see, it's as we see Jesus that you and I are actually able to see others the way that he does and love them by the power of his spirit. And as we do, we realize it's actually God loving them through us. So this morning, as we try to bring this series to a bit of a a wrap-up, let me try to close it this way. I know it's been a little bit weird. Let me try to close it this way. We've spent a couple of weeks in in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 has the parable of the Good Samaritan. It also has Jesus' encounter with Martha and Mary that we read a few weeks ago. Both of those are in the same chapter. But I don't know if you realize it. At the start of Luke chapter 10, there's something else that happens. The start of Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the 72 out in pairs to go into all the towns and all the villages and to proclaim the gospel to everyone who will hear. It teaches them how to to deal with their responses to him. And then after a period of time, they come back to him. They tell him what happened. Then he tells the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's how it goes. And I don't know if you realize this, but whenever you and I talk about the nature of the gospel, the, the call of God to his people to fearlessly proclaim the gospel, to be ruthlessly gospel centered to exalt Jesus to the highest place. There's, there's a percentage of the church that gets very excited about that and a percentage of the church that goes, well, wait a minute, there's, there's more than just that, right? It's not just all exclusivity and proclamation. There's heart too, right? Well, Jesus follows up this call to his disciples to go and proclaim the truth of the gospel to all who will listen everywhere they go with the story of the Good Samaritan. And when you read the story of the Good Samaritan and the the story of the radical, compassionate, sacrificial love for your neighbor, the very people who were so excited about gospel proclamation get a little bit nervous. And the very people who are most nervous about just exclusive proclamation get really excited. But do you realize that for the church from Jesus, he has no problem with either. He puts both together. He weaves them both together to talk about what it looks like to be a people who are truly satisfied with who he is, who find no higher joy than proclaiming and making him known, and at the same time, they reflect the heart of God to those that are around them. Historically, wherever the gospel has flourished, you go back and read the stories, there's always been a radical gospel centrality, a radical, purposeful, intentional effort to proclaim the truths of the gospel, but with that has always been woven together a radical expression of the compassionate heart of God in the way the church has been a neighbor to their city. It's where you get the stories of men like the Roman Emperor Julian, who was writing a letter to one of his associates, and he said, the religion of the Greeks does not prosper. Why do we not observe how the charity, let's call it compassion, how the charity of Christians, the compassion of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause. It's disgraceful that these Christians support our poor in addition to their own, while everyone is able to see our co-religionists lack aid from us. What he said is, 
We take care of our own. But these Christians, they see those around them have compassion. They reflect something of a compassion that, that our religion, that our thoughts, that, that our structures can't reflect. They reflect the compassion not just to their own, but to everyone around them, and they're willing to act at great cost to themselves for everyone's poor, for everyone's cast out, regardless of what ethnicity they were, regardless of whatever socioeconomic class they're in. Julian said their compassion has only served to advance their cause. The gospel was continuing to change lives while paganism was losing its grip. See, whenever the gospel captures your heart like it had the church in Rome, your view of God is transformed. And what comes into your mind when you think about God. It's the most important thing about you because it's going to dictate the way that you live. The way that you not just see God, but the way you see yourself and the way you view those around you. We can only, only begin to embody the compassion that our city longs for. Only in any way begin to to serve the brokenness of the world that is surrounding us as our hearts see God the Father accurately in his Son. See the heart of compassion reflected back to us in Jesus. That's the vision of God to capture our heart that finally and truly sets us free. Free to actually see people the way Jesus does free to actually risk our own comfort and well-being, to sacrifice, to proclaim, to see people and not pass by, to act for their well-being and for that to cause us to rejoice. When that happens, when that begins to work itself out in the life of God's people, wherever he puts them, when that begins to happen in this church in greater measure in this city, that is the gospel that we are proclaiming being embodied in the lives that we're putting on display. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion. He saw them and had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to cultivate and send out laborers into his harvest. His church, his people, who see their neighbors the way that he does, who reflect the nature of his compassion to them, who tie up their well-being and the well-being of those around them. G.K. Chesterton, he, he brought it home in a way that was very helpful to me this week. Chesterton said, you and I, we make our friends and we make our enemies, but God is the one who makes our next-door neighbor. He said the old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when it said, not of one's duty towards humanity, but one's duty towards one's neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice which is personable or even pleasurable. 
But we have to love our neighbor because he's there. Much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. Our neighbor is the sample of humanity which God has actually given us. I'll be honest, it's harder for us today than it maybe was for Chesterton because of social media. Technology has tried to convince us that everyone is our neighbor, but this is where God has placed us, church. In this city, in this time, in this place. And our city is literally asking to be known for compassion. And God has providentially, purposefully placed us here with the intention that as we continue to see him as he is most clearly in his son and are increasingly conformed into his image and likeness, you and I will be able to see those around us the way that he does and reflect his compassionate heart for him the way that his compassion has so transformed our own lives. So what kind of neighbors will we be? Redemption Hill, it all comes down to what we think about God. What comes into our mind and heart when we think about God. It all comes down to who we truly believe God is. So may God give us so clear a vision of his compassion, so clear a vision of his heart, that we can do nothing less than long to reflect in hands-on, messy, time-consuming, sacrificial living, reflect his compassion to this city. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, to be the people you have called us to be is going to require you to do a work in our hearts that can only happen by the power of your Holy Spirit. On this side of eternity, we're always going to be dim reflections of your compassion and love, but what we cling to is the promise that you, by your Spirit, will increasingly conform our hearts and our lives to the image and likeness of your Son. So I ask this morning that you would create in each of our hearts a a ferocious desire to see you as you truly are, to not give in to caricatures and lies and, and whispers of what you're like, but to give us such a clear and passionate image of your heart that our heart can do nothing but long to be near you and reflect it to those around us. That's the only way it's gonna happen. The only way I'm gonna get over myself and my self-righteousness and my selfishness and my schedules and my hurry is for you to give me such a clear picture of who you are who you've been for me and who you promise to be for me that I can long for nothing less than to reflect that kind of grace to those that you put around me. So God, I ask for your glory in this city, for the well-being of our neighbors, for the joy of our hearts. You would do that work in us by your spirit in Jesus' name. All right, church, I love you. See you next week. You've been listening to a message given by Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.